Good morning, everyone, and uh, so good to see awesome. your smiling faces. You all look good up here. And uh, I'm Tom Nelson. Welcome to Christ Community, Leewood Campus particularly, and uh, I have the joy of serving on the teaching team, so it is a real privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. What do you do when God tells you no? When the answer you get from God is not the answer you want from God. Now, whether you consider yourself a Christian uh, and you're here this morning or you are considering the Christian faith, I want to suggest that all of us pray at some time in life. It seems research tells us that we all are hardwired to pray. Yet I want to also say that the prayer experience that we have can lead us into two very diverse directions. Prayer often leads us to deeper faith but it can also lead us to greater doubt. Maybe you have prayed for some unfulfilled longing for many years. Maybe it's a restored relationship with a parent or a child or a spouse, only to experience greater and greater alienation from them each day. Your heart's desire may have been marriage, Yet you are experiencing continued singleness, and as I've talked to many who are single, you feel cheated in life. You so long for that connection, that sense of security, and you feel so alone. Maybe you have prayed for that business to succeed, yet you are enduring the exhausting and fearful disillusionment of failure. You may have prayed for physical or emotional healing or the spiritual growth of a friend only to face the discouraging reality of the gnawing and numbing status quo. You may have have prayed for God to act, to rescue you, to provide, to heal, to salvage. And the answer has come back as a de facto no. Perhaps in that moment, that moment of that strong no, you have felt very abandoned by God and you have felt terribly alone. It may seem that God didn't hear you and that he doesn't somehow really care about you, that God himself doesn't understand what it's like to face a big no, to have your prayer denied. Let's be very honest, prayer, as beautiful as it is, can be one of life's greatest struggles. Yet I believe the deepest struggle with prayer is not with, quote, unanswered prayer, but with answered prayer that says, no. Now, in my own faith journey, I have to say transparently, there have been few things, apart from certain intellectual issues of coherence, There's nothing beyond that that has been more powerful and more challenging to my faith than in my prayer life. Especially when I prayed for years for something I longed for, something that seemed so good and right. And God just says, no, no, no. How do we respond when our prayers are denied? 
What do we do when our prayers hit that immovable wall of God's apparent unwillingness? Our text this morning takes us face to face with that raw reality. Jesus knows what it feels like to pour his heart out in prayer, to plead with the Heavenly Father and be told, no. And yet this morning we will see that the big no Jesus faces in the agonizing crucible of prayer does not weaken his faith, but deepens it. And through his example, Jesus teaches us a bedrock truth that we must wrap around our heart and mind every day as an apprentice of Jesus. And it is this. Always say yes to God the Father, even when he says no to you. Always say yes to God, even when he looks you in the eye and says no. If you brought a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first book in the New Testament, chapter 26. Now, we are entering Matthew's final week of Jesus' life, and we are now in chapter 26. So let's set the narrative stage. Where are we in our story? Jesus has just finished celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, and during the meal, Jesus has shared a lot of stuff with them. The Gospel writer John gives us a lot of texture here. But at the heart of it, he's not only stunned them, he shared his deepest thoughts and deepest prayers and deepest longings with his most intimate friends on earth. So imagine they leave their dinner and they sing a hymn together and they make their way to the Mount of Olives, which in modern Israel is Mount Scopus. And it overlooked the city of Jerusalem. I think we have a slide of a more modern rendition. But this was the place where they frequented, way up on top of this mountain looking west, as Jerusalem nestled below them. It is the dark of night. And as they leave the upper room, they descend into the Kidron Valley, which is a deep crevasse. You can see a little bit of that there as it drops on the eastern wall. And they make their way which is not an easy thing, I assure you, up to the Mount of Olives. It's a steep elevation. You can imagine hearing sandals walking in the dust, climbing a steep elevation in the cool night air with heavy perspiration as they have serious exertion climbing this big hill. As they walk, they are probably out of breath, or they are wrestling with that, And Jesus is anything but out of breath. And he stuns them once again. As they are walking, climbing this big hill, Jesus says something that makes them forget how tired they are. He looks at them as they are walking and he says, when I am going to need you most, you're going to abandon me. Verse 31, if you have your text open, Jesus reads, or Jesus says these words, you will all fall away. Because for this night it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And Peter blurts out, as Peter often does, 
Wow. No way, Jesus, no way, no way. I'll never fall away. And notice Jesus replies, Peter, tonight, in just a few hours, you're going to deny me three times. Peter is just indignant. Never. Even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And notice all the disciples chime in, you bet. Now at this point, after this blurting out, there had to be an awkward silence. As they continued their way to a place where Jesus and his disciples, when they were in Jerusalem, frequented often. Gethsemane was a serene garden-like setting. It's terraced with olive trees, and it offered this breathtaking view to the west of all of Jerusalem below. Now, the name Gethsemane is very important to the gospel writer Matthew. Gethsemane, in the Hebrew text, means olive press, which refers to this large, massive stone that crushed olives into oil. Matthew's eyewitness account here, remember he is traveling with them, he is the tax collector who follows Jesus, not only affirms the historicity of this location and moment, but he is doing something else with his literary brilliance. He wants us to make the connection of how significant this moment is in Jesus' story. Because Gethsemane will be the place, not just Golgotha, but Gethsemane, where Jesus the cornerstone will be pressed and crushed in the crucible of God's will, the Father's will. Gethsemane, by its very name, is a crucible. So in the crucible of Gethsemane, we now read the story. I'd like you to stand as we read the scripture for this morning, beginning with verse 36. Hear God's word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to him, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time saying the same words again. 
Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's be going. My betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So in this brilliant text, we have one of the most profound teachings on prayer. It is a place where the pressure points of prayer touch the sovereignty of God. There are three pressure points of prayer I want you to see as we look at this narrative this morning that Matthew gives us with stunning brilliance. The three pressure points of prayer are overwhelming agony, troubling irony, and continuing surrender. The flow of the narrative is overwhelming agony, troubling irony, and continuing surrender. Now Matthew tells us first about the overwhelming agony of Jesus. Jesus feels it intensely. He tells us in the story that Jesus takes three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he bears his soul with them. Peter, James, and John, notice in the text, observe the very physiological effects of Jesus' inner torment and agony. The gospel writer Luke actually gives us, he was a physician, a more vivid description of what they saw. And they describe it through eyewitnesses to Luke later on as heavy perspiration dripping off his body like drops of blood. But that's not all. The Greek text that is translated in English that Matthew incorporates are two of the most intense Greek words for emotional anguish. It's translated in English, sorrow and trouble. They speak of the most intense feelings a human can have of sorrow and fear. Recently, I attended a memorial service for a very young child that had tragically died. When I walked into that packed church sanctuary, there was a blanket of intense grief unimaginable that filled the air. I could hardly breathe as I waited for the service to start. And finally, when the service started and it was beautifully done, the mom who had lost her son was overcome by grief, and you could hear her wailing. And hearing that just flooded all of our eyes with tears. This is just a little glimpse of the intense words Matthew chooses to describe where Jesus is at in this story. Jesus is choking with suffocating grief. He is feeling the weightiness of what is just around the corner and a heavy blanket of unimaginable grief fills the cool evening air and in the entire garden. Observing Jesus like this must have been a first for Peter, James, and John. They had seen Jesus sorrowful, certainly over the loss of Lazarus, his friend in death. But I seriously doubt in studying the scriptures that they ever observed Jesus like this. Have you ever been with someone 
a loved one. who is in such intense agony, fear, and grief, and you were afraid for them? Peter, James, and John must have been alarmed at this moment. And Jesus' words are that, hey, I'm at the doorstep of death. And he just pleads with them as friends, just stay near me. Stay near me. And if you've been ambushed by grief, you know how important Somebody's presence is. Jesus moves off just a little distance, just a, just a short distance. He lays down on the ground, prostrate before the Father, and prays. And he bears his soul to his heavenly Father. I mean, in a way, we have no idea in the Scripture, this is the most transparent moment of Jesus' human existence, earthly existence. Verse 39, look at it. My Father... If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In Jesus' prayer, we feel this intense emotional agony. The weight that Jesus is carrying while the universe holds its breath. And we get a glimpse of what is causing his overwhelming agony. The text indicates Jesus is fearing the torturous physical agony of crucifixion, no doubt. But there is more going on here. Jesus is anticipating his relationship with his father as he becomes the atoning, sin-bearing sacrifice, facing head-on the wrath of the God, the Father. Something any human being can not even begin to imagine. And Jesus uses a word that is so important for us not to miss. It's a word in our English language and context that doesn't grasp us or, grasp or grab us like it should. Notice the text says in Jesus' prayer, let this cup pass from me. Throughout the Old Testament, the word cup refers to suffering, but particularly the kind of suffering that is a part of the wrath of a holy God against sin and evil and injustice. No one knew the unimaginable fury of a holy God against sin more than the triune son of Jesus Christ. The cup of wrath in the Old Testament pointed to that day of the Lord, that future day when God would set everything right, when evil would be judged And if you want to get just a glimpse of that, we get just a glimpse in human language in the book of Revelation. Hell's fury. God's wrath. In his prayer, Jesus, notice, places himself in the epicenter of God's story of judgment and redemption. And let's remember in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been predicting his own death for several chapters. Multiple times, Jesus has stated what is going to happen happened to him according to what has been written and the meticulous fulfillment of prophecy. It is not that Jesus doesn't know. It is the very fact he does know what awaits him that's in front of us. Jesus, in all that mystery of his divinity and humanity without sin, is trying to come to grips with the enormity of it. 
And he's having a hard time grasping the enormity of what lies ahead. He is double-checking with the Father to make sure there has to be another way. The Children's Storybook Bible beautifully captures the torment Jesus is feeling when it writes, but there was something else, something even more horrible. When people ran away from God, they lost God. It was what happened when they ran away. Not being close to God was like a punishment. Jesus was going to take that punishment. Jesus knew what that meant. He was going to lose his father. And that Jesus knew would break his heart in two. Violent sobs shook Jesus' whole body. That's exactly it. In Gethsemane's crucible, Jesus feels the intense pressure of overwhelming agony. Think with me for a moment. All the human emotions of fear of abandonment, of loss, of betrayal, of sorrow, ambush him in this moment. Again, Matthew's gospel, we are reminded over and over again that Jesus truly gets what we experience. (laughs) He gets what we feel, even in the darkest moment. First pressure point of prayer we see is overwhelming agony. On the heels of it is the second pressure point. Jesus not only feels overwhelming agony, he faces very troubling irony. If you've been with us in the journey through Matthew, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. You'll remember that Matthew employs the literary form of irony perhaps more than any gospel writer. He's into irony. And wow, is he into it here. Now let's remember that irony presents us something that has a different or opposite effect or result than we expect. Irony takes us by surprise, right? For example, we say, it's one of those ironies of life that by the time you've earned enough money for the things you always wanted, you no longer have the energy to enjoy them. (laughs) That's irony. So how is Matthew using irony here in the story of the crucible of Gethsemane? Matthew wants us to feel two troubling ironies. The ironies of the sleepy disciples, for sure, and the irony of a loving father who says no. Now, let's look at those ironies briefly. First, Peter, James, and John are alarmed. Jesus specifically asked them, now stay awake, and in these circumstances, the last thing you'd ever expect is for them to fall asleep. Why? Because intense grief is not a recipe for nodding off to sleep. Now, as a pastor, I often see people sleeping, right? <laughs> not, not here, of course. Uh, but sleeping during a sermon's one thing, okay? We're under grace here. But I have to tell you, I have never, and I've done a lot, I have never seen or heard someone sleep or heard someone snore during a funeral service. Have you? I have never seen it. Why? Because grief keeps sleep at sleeve's length. It's the nature of it. One of the indicators of great grief is sleeplessness. 
And yet Jesus discovers his disciples are fast asleep. Do you feel the irony? Not only once, but three times in a row, for goodness sakes. And each time, Jesus tries to wake them up. And Jesus must have had tears in his eyes here. The text doesn't say it, but it's all over that. Could you not stay away? I mean, for at least one hour? He said, I'm at the end of my rope. I need you here. So if you read this text and you don't have the emotion, you miss it. I mean, I'm a crier, but this text makes me want to cry all the way through it. As it should. This is where Jesus is. We think Jesus wept at the, at the tomb of Lazarus. He did. He's weeping here. It's just pouring through. The second irony of the Father saying no is more subtle, but it's really important. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has repeatedly emphasized to his disciples when they pray, what? You can ask the Heavenly Father, and this is what Jesus says, and he will give you anything. Right? All through Jesus' teaching, just ask the Father. Father asks for a fish. He's not going to give his son a stone, for goodness sakes. Jesus just taught this over and over again. Yet here, it is Jesus, the very Son of God, who in desperate prayer asks the Father, and the Father says, nope, ain't going to do it. Maybe you pray to use ain't. Do you feel the irony? Matthew wants us to soak in it. In Mark's gospel, Jesus' words explicitly capture the irony. When Mark describes these words, the message Jesus gives his father is the tender appeal of Abba, like daddy, kind of, or a father tenderness. And Mark says, notice, not a question, all things are possible for you, father. All things. Jesus is saying to the Father, there has to be another way to accomplish the redemptive mission than by way of the cross. You are full of infinite possibilities and power. Why this way? In his incarnated sinless humanity, Jesus is facing a no from the Father. He's experiencing the trauma of losing his intimacy with the one he loved most. And ironically, the Father, the very one whom Jesus taught, will grant us everything we ask him is the one who is saying no to Jesus' own request. I want to suggest to you, I can't prove this, I don't think Jesus had ever experienced a no like this in eternity before. <laughs> you see how big deal this is? But I think this gets to the heart of our struggle with prayer. Or should I say my struggle with prayer? When God's answer to our prayer is no, it's really hard. And it makes us vulnerable to two of the most damnable lies humans could ever believe. What are they? I'm going to suggest two of the most damnable lies, and there's lots of them out there. These are the two most damnable lies. First is that our prayers are not really heard. And secondly, our prayers don't really matter. They're not really heard, and they don't really matter. See, when we believe these lies, it is then that we feel desperately alone and helpless. Satan's most destructive lies are often tied to prayer. 
because prayer is our most powerful means of influence in the universe and our lifeline of tender intimacy with God himself. Satan is brilliantly evil. And if we're really honest, our deep struggle is not about our prayers being unanswered. It's about being answered in ways we don't want. Yet ironically, our deepest sense of being loved can come when we wholeheartedly pour out our longings to God and realize he has said no. In those lonesome valleys where God does not say yes to our prayers, we can be paralyzed with fear, sorrow, and numbness. We wrestle, don't we, whether we can trust him. Corrie ten Boom is a remarkable lady that wrote in the 19th century or 20th century. And her beloved sister died in Hitler's concentration camp. And Corrie was known for many things. One of her famous quotes is this. You cannot help but think of it when you think of this text. She said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. God's no answers must be seen in the immensity of God's love for us. God's word tells us our prayers are really heard and they really matter. God always answers our prayers. Sometimes he says an immediate yes. Sometimes an immediate no. And sometimes a wait, not now. My mom, delights, who is now with the Lord, loved poetry. And she wrote a lot of it. My favorite poem of my mom's was entitled God's Parentheses. Let me give you just a phrase. She wrote, I have often wondered why we mortals so often insist on putting question marks where God has put periods and periods where God has written only a comma. Yeah. See, in the crucible of Gethsemane, first, Jesus feels the pressure point of overwhelming agony. Second, he faces the pressure point of troubling irony. And thirdly, notice where the focus of the text is. He affirms his continuing surrender to God, the Father. Even though Jesus experienced such intense agony and he's facing such troubling irony, he repeats a phrase. The primary repetition of this prayer is not my will, Lord, the Father, but as you will. It's in verse 39 and 42. And in verse 44, it's implied. At least three times he repeats it. And the disciples, again, if you remember the story, are in awe of Jesus' prayer more than anything else. Not just his miracles, his prayer. He says, Lord, teach us to pray. And he does teach them to pray. And we know one of the prayer model prayers is what? The Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord's Prayer go? Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Here is the one who taught the prayer, now praying it in the most excruciating moment. Completely trusting the Heavenly Father. In Gethsemane's prayer crucible, the very Son of God is pleading with God the Father, and the Son is surrendering, saying, not my will, but your will. Yes to you, Father, even when that means no to me. And I want to suggest that saying yes to God, even when he says no to us, is the hardest thing I ever experienced in life. A life of apprenticeship with Jesus is filled with paradox. It is the path to life that we long to live. It is full of joy and hope, but often that's on the heels when God says no to you 
When we say yes to God, when he says no, says no to us, perhaps it's also the evil one's greatest fear. You know, that Satan doesn't fear much about your life and mine. But I know one thing he fears. C.S. Lewis brilliantly describes it in screw tape letters. If you've not read that, you need to. C.S. Lewis portrays the demonic world with remarkable imagination and insight. Demon Uncle Screwtape seeks to train a younger demon, right? Wormwood, his younger apprentice. And he makes this point. Be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. Saying yes to God, even when he says no to us, is very challenging. Especially when we experience a desire left unfulfilled, a dream shattered, a chronic persistent condition, such as same-sex attraction or an addiction, or a physical or mental health challenge, or a besetting sin that seems to just enslave us through life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus faces the intense pressure points of prayer. And he passionately, transparently, intensely seeks the Father's will. Why? Because we learn the most important truth enmeshed in this narrative. And that prayer is ultimately not about getting things, it's about getting more of God. That Jesus teaches us that prayer is more relational than transactional. That the greatest answer to prayer is growing intimacy with God. That prayer's primary delight is not getting something we ask for, as wonderful as that is, but rather the joy of a growing relationship with Christ. And you and I can say yes to God when he says no to us if we grasp that first and foremost, prayer is not about getting more from God, but getting more of God himself. It was Jesus' pattern of earthly prayer that allowed him to face this crucible moment. Growing intimate prayer life is the greatest empowerment for living the life you and I were created to live. If you are a follower of Jesus, let me ask you, when was the last time you just spent time in prayer from a grateful heart? Not asking God for anything, but simply telling Jesus how much you love him. When was the last time? How much you long to see him face to face one day? I want to share in closing two reminders, brief reminders, that I think are important for prayer. First, we never pray alone. Scriptures remind us that while we may pray alone, prayer is never a solitary exercise. The gospel writer Luke tells us that when Jesus was at his end of his rope, a heavenly visitor joined him in the garden. We are told in Hebrews that a great cloud of witnesses surrounds us. Apostle Paul reminds us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and John tells us that Jesus is praying for us right now. That's what I call one heck of a prayer team. Prayer is the language of heaven come to earth in a God-bathed world. It's the currency of life in the kingdom. Prayer is our lifeline, our soul's essential breath. We never pray alone. 
Secondly, we never pray in vain. Do not believe the hellish lie that your prayers are not heard or don't matter. God is always attentive to us and to our words. God may not answer our prayers in the way we might want, but he knows what we are asking and he cares about what you care about. God has a sovereign vantage point and he has a good sovereign purpose for your life and mine. Prayer is the most powerful change agent any follower of Christ has at their disposal. Philosopher, author, and Christian Dallas Willard makes the point that prayer is interacting with God about what we are doing with him together in the world. In prayer, the cobwebs of confusion are cleared and we are reminded in fresh ways that God is always there for us, he is always caring for us, and he always has our best interest in mind. Let's not miss that in a garden called Eden, sin and death entered God's good and perfect world, wreaking unimaginable, ha- unimaginable havoc in our world. But also there's a garden called Gethsemane where Jesus was told no so that we could be told Yes. Yes to the good news of our rescue from sin and death. Jesus denied prayer, made possible his journey to the cross in Jerusalem where the Lamb of God's sinless blood would be shed for you and for me in a journey to another garden where a resurrected Messiah Jesus would defeat death once and for all. Philip Yancey writes beautifully, he says, when Jesus prayed to the one who could save him from death, he did not get that salvation, he got instead the salvation of the world. How grateful I am that God, as Luther said, struggled with God in that garden. How grateful I am that God the Father said no to Jesus' prayer. How about you? Because Jesus' no is our yes. Let's pray.